and WDMV 700 Radio in Washington, D.C. And now, your host, Ray Hanania. Watch the show live on Arab News Facebook page. And welcome, everybody, to the Ray Hanania Radio Show here on U.S. Arab Radio Network, sponsored by Arab News, the leading English-language newspaper in the Middle East. I am Ray Hanania. It is Wednesday, May 10, 2023, and we're broadcasting live in Detroit on WNZK AM 690 and in Washington, D.C. on WMV, WDMV AM 700 on the ArabRadio.us uh, website and also streaming on Facebook.com slash Arab News. You can get the podcast at ArabNews.com, Ray radio show we have a great show today um we have a we're going to be talking about the power struggle between sudan's rival military leaders um, that have shattered a tenuous peace that existed in sudan causing a conflict that has spread throughout the country fighting between the sudanese army and the paramilitary group rapid support forces erupted in sudan's capital khartoum in mid-april and have now engulfed large parts of Sudan. Thousands of civilians have been killed and tens of thousands more are fleeing the widening conflict. Saudi Arabia and the United States and others are coordinating face-to-face -face negotiations to bring the violence to an end in Jeddah between the two sides in the hopes of ending this outbreak um, that has torn Sudan apart. We're gonna be speaking with two guests first, an American woman who heads an NGO in Khartoum who helps the Sudanese people. We're withholding her name and identity at her request for safety concerns. We're just going to call her Frances. She'll tell you about her harrowing story of fleeing the violence in Sudan. She is now back safe in the U.S., but will be returning to Sudan to resume her humanitarian work once the violence subsides. We will also speak with Dr. Hafiz Abdul Hafiz, a Sudanese-American physician who arrived in Khartoum only five hours before the violence spread across the country. He is a board member of the Sudanese American Physicians Association, SAPA, which is raising funds to help people in Sudan who are in desperate need. In our final segment, we're going to shift gears and speak with Dearborn Mayor Abdullah Hamoud, the first Arab American and Muslim mayor, as well as being the second youngest mayor in the city's history. I, I love the mayor. He's such a good guy. Uh, he, before being elected mayor in November 2021, uh, Mayor Hamoud served three terms in the Michigan State General Assembly from January 2017 through his election as Dearborn mayor. He was only 26 years old when he ran for the state house and won. Mayor Hamoud will update us on some of the administration's first, including designating Ramadan's Eids as paid holidays for Dearborn City employees, the first of many cities in the country to do that, we're told. Let's take our first break, and when we come back, we'll talk with our first guest, Francis, who is uh, the head of an NGO in Sudan to tell us about what happened and how she escaped the violence there. We'll be right back with our guests right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. 
Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. In a perfect world, everyone would be a perfect driver. Hands at nine and three, everyone. Nine and three. Everyone would follow all the rules. Please, go ahead and merge. I'll make room. Thank you, fellow driver. And nothing unexpected would ever happen. Even the squirrels would know the right time to safely cross the road. In this perfect world, you wouldn't have to wear a seatbelt. But in case you hadn't noticed, we don't live in a perfect world. About a thousand people in Michigan die each year in vehicle crashes, and thousands more are injured. Wearing your seatbelt reduces your risk of death in a crash by 45% in a car and by 60% in a pickup truck. So until we find a perfect world to drive in, make our imperfect world safer by buckling up. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. Were you recently at the emergency room, urgent care, or at your doctor's office being told you need a hand, wrist, or elbow specialist? At the Katranji Hand Center, we offer the latest techniques in hand, wrist, and elbow care. From sports injuries to work injuries to everyday hand, wrist, and elbow problems, the specialists at Katranji Hand Center are here to get you back on track. Call us in Troy today at 248-869-4263 or visit us at katranjihandcenter.com to schedule your appointment today going to welcome uh, our next guest, uh, Francis. Now, uh, that's not a real name, but she works with a humanitarian organization in Sudan. We're not going to identify her or the group for sensitivity and security, safety reasons. But Francis, tell us uh, what happened. You were in Sudan. You were doing work to help people. Um, and then what happened? I um, lead a humanitarian organization, an international organization in Sudan. And we are a humanitarian organization that before April 15th was serving up to 2 million people a year. Um, there's a dire humanitarian uh, crisis in Sudan. There has been one for 30 or 40 years. It's one of the largest in the world. And so the current crisis is compounding what has already been um, truly a humanitarian uh, crisis of proportions that's impossible to believe nearly 16 million people were in need for humanitarian aid before April 15th. Um, for several weeks leading up to the start of the conflict, those of us in the NGO community, which is non-governmental organizations that do humanitarian work, we were deeply concerned that uh, we were one uh, gunshot away from uh, either a conflict or full-blown civil war. Um, for several weeks, we had our go bags packed, uh, knowing that we may have to flee. Um, on April 15th at about 9, 10, 9, 12 a.m., um, I was resting at home on a Saturday and heard a large explosion. And I sprung up from the couch and thought, oh my gosh, uh, the war is starting. And so I was able to um, get in touch with my deputy and he confirmed with me that um, there was uh, violence occurring. We heard a lot of gunshots. We heard a lot of bombs going off. I reside in an area that is close to the airport and is still uh, occupied by um, the paramilitary group. And so um, from that Saturday morning, 
through the Tuesday. Um, I was not able to leave my building and I was um, fortunate that there was a Sudanese family that lived next door to me. We were a very small building. The paramilitary group on Saturday afternoon took over our building. Um, and so we, my, my um, neighbors have a, a, an amazing son in their 20s in his 20s and he protected my life multiple times over the four days he then was able to keep them out of my flat by explaining that i was an international uh staff uh working for an embassy uh which he said in hopes that a diplomatic uh cover would would protect me and um that i didn't speak arabic and so just leave me alone i don't have anything to offer them um, what is really important uh, here is that um, what I learned over the next four days was that um, the, the, the paramilitary group um, has a lot of young men that are uh, fighting this fight. And um, on one hand, of course, I was frightened. On the other hand, um, I had a lot of empathy for these young men who are uh, part of a web of conflict and, um, and violence that um, I hope and, and really do pray will end uh, soon for Sudan. Were these paramilitary groups, I mean, that took over your uh, building where you lived, um, were they looking for foreigners? I mean, what were they looking for? No, they... So there's, there's no, um, right, as of now, there's very little and hasn't been a target for foreigners. This is very much um, a conflict in Sudan between Sudanese. Right. I would say between a small fraction of Sudanese. The overwhelming majority of Sudanese are a very peaceful, very spiritual. They're, uh, it's a Muslim country. Uh, the Muslim, the Islam they practice is very deeply spiritual, very um, welcoming, very gracious. And so um, the foreign, the, it was a non-duty station for most uh, international NGOs, um, only because of the vol volatil volatility of uh, the, the country and having been um, under a former authoritarian rule for 30 years. It's not because foreigners were targeted. Got it. What they were actually looking for was water, food, rest, cover, uh, so that they could um, rest and then go back out and fight. Um, they were very respectful. They did not threaten us until about Monday afternoon. Our building was a very strategic, and they didn't really threaten us. They wanted our building. Right. It was a very strategic location that allowed them snipers on the roof, as well as um, uh, land-to-air uh, shooting for fighter jets. And so it was in their interest to move us out of the building as quickly as possible. Um, by Monday afternoon, it became evident that we were going to have to, it became evident that the fighting was going to be going on longer than we had hoped. We had hoped maybe it would be a day or two, and then we would get back to normal in uh, in Khartoum. Um, Monday Monday afternoon, the the paramilitary group they started getting younger, uh, less professional. They right. were 
probably on the front lines of fighting in the city. They were exhausted, and I think that they were probably told to get to get the building for the paramilitary group. Monday evening, I moved into the flat with the family. Uh, we decided it wasn't safe enough for me, not because of fear of the of violence from the paramilitary group, but because it was active shooting and bombing all around uh, our building. So I went into the the apartment next door with the family. There were um, eight of us in that apartment. There was no electricity and lots of airstrikes were happening by Monday. And so we spent a lot of time laying on mattresses in a dark room on the ground with pillows over our heads. Um, and the land air missiles outside our building sounded like they were right inside our living room. By Tuesday, um, we had heard that there would be a ceasefire. That's the 18th of, of April. Um, and I was in touch, of course, with my, my global office and security. Unlike past conflicts or, or uh, uh, violence in Sudan, they left the internet on. Um, usually wow. the internet is shut down. So the internet was a lifeline for us. We were it, very fortunate. Is it fair to say that uh, this conflict between the two sides really wasn't about the uh, foreigners that were there, uh, the civilians? They weren't really targeting you, but the violence around you obviously was a threat. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because um, what is really unfortunate, and as a humanitarian, it's it's really shocking and, and deeply upsetting to me that um, the two sides are not honoring um, international humanitarian law or the rules of, of war. And those were uh, put in place uh, specifically to ensure that humanitarian aid could continue uh, even in uh, the case of a conflict or war, that civilians would not be targeted, that healthcare and hospital facilities would be protected, and that humanitarians would not be targeted. So you must have heard that there were some of violations of that, that there were civilians that were because we absolutely civilians, hospitals, and humanitarian workers, Sudanese humanitarian workers have been killed. So all of uh, that's all been violated, and from a humanitarian international humanitarian law, um, and as a humanitarian, we are appealing to both sides to honor uh, the protection of civilians, to honor the protection of humanitarian workers, and to ensure hospitals can reopen and treat patients, and that humanitarians will be protected and have access to provide humanitarian aid to, to people who need it most. As I mentioned, nearly 16 million people in need of humanitarian aid prior to April 15th. There are some estimates that that is now double. And those that have been able to flee um, are those that had the, the ability to do so. They had money to be, to be able to pay for transport. They maybe had their own vehicles. They had petrol or diesel. How did you make it out of the country? You had yeah. to eventually leave then, right? We did leave. We had, we were able to, I, I want to also underscore that there are thousands of Sudanese who have put their lives on the line to support people like me to get us out of the country. It is the Sudanese that um, ensured that I had a path out and that I'm alive today. Um, on that Tuesday afternoon, we were waiting for the ceasefire. And then I got a call from a Sudanese that I know very well that said the streets are very quiet right now. 
negotiate with the paramilitary group and and leave your neighborhood they they tried to take my vehicle i have a, a work vehicle that is an suv they came in and had asked for the keys to it on on sunday and this young man negotiated with the paramilitary group and said she's with the with an embassy her driver has the key we don't have the key so fortunately my car was unharmed i told the family to pack quickly i had my go bag we negotiated with the paramilitary group they were very gentle with us they even carried our bags to the car <laughs> because they needed our building earlier on that monday they were not so gentle and and right. um and um it was very so, frightening so we it could go either way at any moment I mean. absolutely i mean they held guns to us and it was like a movie flashlights in your face and and questioning us in arabic and i didn't speak arabic and um i i started to hyperventilate a little bit they went and got me water um it was very evident that they did not want to harm us but we had six or seven uh soldiers in our building or in our apartment at the time and any one of them could have uh reacted differently they held guns to us right um and so they they, they started it got became more frequent from monday to tuesday of them coming into the to the the apartment and so um at about three o'clock, we de I decided we have to move. So we packed the car. They escorted us part of the way through uh, the, through what was their their territory. The streets looked like a war zone, uh, shellings everywhere, and and uh, it, it it was un you know it was impossible to believe that five days before, you know the birds were singing and I was sitting on my terrace and having a cup of coffee and it was a beautiful oh. breeze. Um, we we ended up being able to make it safely um, to a, a, a street that was sort of the dividing line between the paramilitary and the military. Um, we had many checkpoints. It was uh, they're not, they're not official checkpoints, but uh, you know, soldiers with soldiers. guns would stop yeah. you, right? Right, and we were and we were they shot in our direction at one point and um, surrounded our vehicle and. Um, I held my passport up in a little white flag and said Ramadan Kareem. Uh, I said Ramadan Kareem to everybody first because it was still Ramadan, um, hoping that it would remind them that this was the antithesis of Ramadan. Um, and then um, would explain that the country that I am from and that we mean no harm. We are just trying to get to safety. And they let us go. Um, my Sudanese family was concerned that if had, I had not been there, that they would have been killed. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. Unfortunately, we will never have to find out. The young man drove and said he was my driver and that I was with an embassy and taking the family with me. We were able to get to safety in a hotel, in, in the Asalam Hotel. And then from there, um, things really escalated in Khartoum. And you were in Khartoum at the time? Oh, in Khartoum. I was, in, I, I, my, my flat remains in the center of uh, much of the violence. Right. Um, it is an area that's very strategic for the paramilitary group. Um, they have a stronghold. Uh, you know, I have photos from my kitchen window on the 15th where it's just two blocks away that the bombings were happening. And where did you flee? How did you get out? I mean, where did you drive to? Yeah, then? So it's um, it's a it's a it's not a complicated story. It's an unfortunate story because 
despite us knowing for since at least 2019 that this was possible right. the evacuation um plans by the international community were flawed if not non-existent and so we had hoped to uh join the un convoy to port sudan we had a bus that um we had arranged and i was going to take 50 people uh four who are international staff of mine that we were able to get from my international staff to the hotel. Thanks again to the Sudanese, our guards um, made four round trips uh, to get them to safety. Um, we were all in the hotel and at midnight, the day, the night before we were supposed to leave, we found out that um, our bus was outbid by the UN. So we were willing to pay a certain amount and the UN doubled it so that they could take our bus in their convoy. So we were left stranded without- Wow. Yeah. I and mean, that's kind of ironic. The and when was there to help people and right they, not, in order to help time. people right not, not intentionally right not but time. they also had a mandate that Sudanese would not be allowed in the convoy and when I found that out I said that's uh, a order um I'm not leaving the my Sudanese family so the UN was only helping uh non-Sudanese to leave right and that is part of their I don't understand the policy right. but apparently that's part of their mandate and policy so I can honor that, but I find that really ironic, as you say, yeah. because um, we're in Sudan helping the Sudanese, supporting the Sudanese. Did you end up going to Port Sudan or did you end up detouring well, someplace else? We detoured because when I saw the, the convoys lining up, um, I saw that they had told us not to take SUVs or, or Hilux, uh, Toyota Hilux, which is a pickup truck. Those are very high value targets for, for carjacking. But then I saw people lining up in these cars and those are the cars we had. And so um, I told my staff, including this family that saved my life, that we were going and we were gonna go to Medani in um, Al Jazeera state and then make it to Gadarif in Gadarif state where we have a large operation. And from there we could get to Port Sudan, which was eight hours to nine hours north. Right. So we we um we went on our own. I had with the support of my global office. We we had internet, so they were tracking our locations um on the phone. And um we packed up and along the way, before we even left the the uh Al Salam Hotel, um two uh staff of a German organization that were there consulting uh with the central bank. They had met me Tuesday night when I arrived, and this was um, on a Saturday. They asked if they could join us. They saw it as their only way out of Khartoum. Much to the chagrin at the time of my staff, I said, of course, uh, because we had a lot of people. It turned out then two Sudanese Americans drove up and said we received, uh, one was a young man who said, I received a note from this Department of State, an email saying, come to the Al Salam and join this Turkish convoy. And I said, I received that same letter or that same email and it said, you need your own car. He said, but what American has their own car here? And I said, exactly. I said, what are you doing here? And he, he's a young student from the West Coast who was visiting his father's family for the first time. He showed me his passport. I said, well, I can't leave an American behind. We have to bring him. We brought him. Another older Sudanese American drove up with his family. He was alone. He was there visiting his, his nephews and nieces. 
and he got out of the car and said the same thing. And I and I looked at my my staff and the drivers and they they said, Heidi, we have no more space. I said, I can't leave. I, I said, right. I, I'm sorry, we have no more space. So we started moving. Two cars were in front, and then no one car was in front, then my car, which is where the head of the organization usually sits in a convoy. You have a, a front car and then cars in the back, and you're usually in the center car for safe security reasons. And um, the front car left, uh, was leaving the hotel, and then I told my driver, we have to, we can't leave this man. He's an older Sudanese American, and I, I will never forgive myself. And so we stopped, and I ran, and I was looking for him. I couldn't find him. Then he got out of his car, the car again of his nephew, and I said, can I see your passport? He showed it to me, and I said, you, you have to come with us right now. We're leaving. And so we found space for him. It was very tight, but at the end of the day, we had 26 people. Wow. In four vehicles. Um, four of us, no, six of us were international. The rest were Sudanese. And um, they were, we left, there were bodies on the street, buildings bombed out, vehicles, you know, uh, military vehicles burned out. It was uh, clear that there had been uh, the day before a lot of fighting. There was bombing right around the hotel. We were in a, in a bunker in the basement for about an hour um, as airstrikes were happening, they bombed the bank right next door wow. to um, the hotel, which was the impetus for us saying, we've got to move. We were able to get out of Khartoum uh, without incident. We were very moving very slowly, the convoy of four of us. Um, uh, the paramilitary group led us through. Um, when we got to Al Jazeera State, um, actually what was quite odd is even in Khartoum State, about 15 minutes away from the hotel on a normal drive. It took us about 45 minutes near uh, the U.S. Embassy. Life was uh, normal. Uh, public transport was working. Shops were open. People were on the streets. Um, and so it really is a, was at the time, and I don't know now, but at right. the time it really was contained to very strategic areas right. um, within Khartoum, including the airport. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and and you were then able to get out to the airport to uh, fly to the states. No, um, we went to Al Jazeera through Al Jazeera State, where we had to refuel and paid one hundred and ten dollars per gallon for gas. Wow, um, for black market gas because there's no petrol. We made it to Medini, had a bunch of falafel sandwiches, our first meal for a couple of days. And then we made it to Gadaref. So that whole trip usually takes six hours. It took us about nine. Along the way, there were beautiful young Sudanese on the road holding signs saying, "We, for those of you coming from Khartoum, we can protect you in our village. They were handing out water and food. And um, I was, I get very emotional remembering those moments because that is Sudan. Right. That is who the Sudanese are. They will give you everything, even it means, even if it means they take nothing. And the beauty of Sudan and its people will not be broken by this conflict. Um, they took care of the international staff, putting themselves at risk, because that is who the Sudanese are. Even when I said, I don't want you to put yourself at risk. They said, you are our sister. You are serving our country. 
we will get you to safety. How we got through was we went, we did not go to Port Sudan. We went through the Ethiopian border. So that and means you had to divert land. again then all the way yeah. it south. Was by land. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. And then we got to Gondar, uh, Ethiopia, and then flew to Addis. And then from Addis, I flew home. We didn't turn around. What we did was at Gadaraf, instead of going north, we went south. Got it. Okay. Southeast. That makes sense. And that, was a, that, that should take an hour and a half. It took us about four hours because of the road. And then we were at the border for a, a day and a night. And then we got to the mountains in Gondar and took a breath and had a meal together and cried and hugged and celebrated that we were alive. And then we all flew together to Addis, and then everybody went on their respective ways. My organization is sponsoring and taking care of the Sudanese families. We have gotten them now to uh, Nairobi, and we have set them up in um, apartments there until they can figure out what their next move is. I am fortunate that I have a job. I have a home to come home to. Um, I lost everything in Sudan, and I'm at peace with that. These, uh, the Sudanese have lost everything um, and they are being displaced and they need the international community to embrace them and support them as we did with the Ukraine um, and as we are doing in many other parts of the world. Francis, thank you. And again, uh, for our listeners, Francis is not a real name, but uh, uh, her story was real and uh, it's really inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Shukran. Thank you. Take care. And uh, welcome back. That was a really uh, moving interview with uh, our guest. Uh, I couldn't, we couldn't name her. She works with a, a NGO in Sudan. She had to flee um, and she agreed to tell her story to share it with you here on uh, the Ray Hanania radio show. When we come back, we're going to take a break, but we'll speak with Dr. Hafiz Abdul Hafiz a Sudanese-American pediatric and cancer surgeon who is based in Memphis, Tennessee, and who is a board member with the Sudanese-American Physicians Association, which is raising money to help the uh, uh, people in Sudan uh, on the challenges he and his organization are facing to get aid to the Sudanese people. Let's take a break. We'll, we'll be right back with our next guest right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Ziad Brand. Quality products from our family to yours. Ziad Brothers Importing offers the finest quality products, including brands like Sultan, Kraft, Nestle, Hook, Rico Picon, Donna, and many more. Ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best. For more information, visit our website at www.ziad.com. That's www.ziad.com. Ziad, quality products from our family to yours. With more than 30,000 successful in vitro fertilizations, IVF Michigan is now ranked as one of America's best fertility clinics, according to Newsweek magazine. IVF Michigan fertility centers are the recognized leaders in high-quality fertility care. 
With locations in Bloomfield Hills and nine other cities in Michigan and Ohio, IVF has experts in all aspects of the field. A founding member, American Board Certified Dr. Nicholas Shama, is one of the leading reproductive endocrinologists in Michigan and Ohio. He has performed over 20,000 successful IVF cases, and it's helped thousands of couples fulfill their dreams of parenthood. When it's time to get personalized care from Dr. Nicholas Shama at one of America's best fertility clinics, call IVF Michigan Fertility Centers in Michigan and Ohio toll-free at 855-952-9600. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we have our, another guest from the uh, Sudanese American Physicians Association, a board member, Dr. Hafiz Abdul Hafiz. Dr. Abdul Hafiz is a pediatric and cancer surgeon based in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome to the program, Dr. Abdul Hafiz. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, and I know this has got to be a terrible time for not just the Sudanese people, but many people that work in Sudan, uh, Sudanese Americans. Tell us what impact is this conflict having on the Sudanese people? and on Sudanese American? Uh, yes, it's um, it's a significant, huge impact. It's a devastating, brutal war that erupted in a, in a, in a very sort of uh, strange time. It was a festive time, the end of Ramadan, the Eid, and people were expecting um, a, 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 a political agreement to be signed and to transition the um, governance back to civilian government and and then this you know fight between those two generals erupted i've actually experienced the war firsthand because i arrived to sudan only five hours before the war erupted we do have ongoing uh, work and our large office is based on khartoum the capital where all the fighting happened but i was also visiting family during that you know special time of the year among the first few targets that were hit during the you know the initial fight fight was was the airport i i remember that i've arrived just reached home and soon after i'm looking at the news seeing people at the airport wow. being subjected to 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 the war and some of them died i think we're only seeing part of the picture there's a lot of limitation of you know of, of uh, you know of our ability to know how many died and how many injured but what i tell you what's sad about this war that we've been seeing an escalation on targeting, um, you know, health workers and health facilities. Seventeen hospital has been bombed. Wow, Twenty wow. hospital has been forcefully evacuated. Uh, more than fifteen uh, physician has been killed, uh, and you know, ambulances has been confiscated. It's just. Um, a brutal war with no with no ethics whatsoever. I, I know that one of your colleagues, I think his name was Dr. Bushra Suleiman, was actually killed as a result of this, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah. Did I think you know him? American. I know him very well. He's actually a, a personal friend. He's a phenomenal doctor, a role model. You know, uh, I, I I don't think any any Sudanese doctor would know Dr. Bushra. Is has been. Um, really uh advocate for for patient he he was a gastroenterologist here in the states and choose to move back home to help people uh and uh he was 
So he, he was able to really mobilize a lot of resources, unite people for the good of the patients, and really improved um, the service and trained a lot of doctors. So it's it's a it's a really sad loss. He's among the two American citizens who's been killed. So two Americans, as far as you know, that as have been killed as... there. So you get there hours before the conflict started. Exactly, it was a shock that nobody knew what all these crazy sounds are coming from. You know. Uh, until we we saw bullets going through the wall, really we realize you know <laughs> this is really serious and this is really near, and uh, and you know uh, people's life is at risk, and this is this this was you know one of the most devastating part of the war that this is this is war within the city, within the street of the city, between two two big units of the of the army, uh, and um, so yeah it, it was shock. Once you got there, obviously, how long did you stay, and and was it difficult for you to come back? And is your family safe? Yeah, it, it was really difficult. We, we we were planning only a short visit, but obviously, it was really not safe to move outside our home for some for some part of the conflict. Then we started gradually to move to the preferred part preferred part of Khartoum, away from the from the uh, uh, you know crossfire zone, but. You know, essentially, there was no part of Khartoum that was not affected. We moved to one location again, same same experience. We a second location, same experience was a lot of fighting until we moved actually to a second uh, city, Medani, which obviously was safe uh, prior to planning. You know how to exit the country. I was there with my kids. Youngest of them was three years old. Wow. So what are your plans now and what can you do? I mean, what are you hearing about what's going on back home? We do have a, an office in, in Khartoum. We were about to, you know, at the early stage of starting an, a second office outside Khartoum. But obviously that plan got activated and now we have a larger office in Medellin, which is outside the, the, the uh, conflict zone. And through that, office and office in Khartoum, we've been able to support hospitals run. We have people obviously on the ground who have been um, sending uh, uh, medical supplies, salaries to uh, uh, health professionals, to run hospitals. We are we, we running multiple hospitals in, in Khartoum and also in the uh, Madani. In, but obviously that only respond to part of the problem, the part that is in Khartoum, and obviously a lot of the uh, population of Khartoum has uh, uh, moved to Medini, the, the second city nearby. So we're trying to respond to that part, but we know a lot of people also moved to South Sudan, to Chad, and we're actively uh, recruiting and working on opening two offices, those two, two sites, obviously. Um, uh, another uh, a big, large number of Sudanese went up north towards the uh, uh, the uh, border with uh, Egypt. And these are the people that are fleeing the conflict. They're going to different parts of Sudan, and that's absolutely. causing a uh, humanitarian crisis, it seems. Yes, absolutely. How, what's the best way for people to help? I think that comes into into two two folds or three folds. Obviously, political pressure to um, really have a ceasefire respect for the you know the international uh, agreement when dealing with medical staff and and and, uh, and health facilities 
and access for for people to uh, healthcare, especially in this like uh, you know circumstances. Obviously, we're dealing with trauma and uh, and more uh, casualty, but at the same time, as people with serious chronic uh, illnesses that require access to, to healthcare, and so this this is really uh, would be a, a very important part of 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 what need to be done. Again, uh, as uh, mentioned earlier, the airport has been destroyed, one of the first target to be destroyed, and that has affected the flow of medical supplies significantly. So we, we are in a really uh, difficult situation. We, 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 you know, there's a dire need for a lot of medical supplies that this is another area that we, you know, we're working uh, extensively to, to secure Many of these supplies working with, with many partners and, and in collaboration with the Ministry of Health. Another aspect of what we need to do is to really uh, be able to deliver care for those uh, displaced people in, in different parts uh, of the country and the neighboring country. Obviously, um, we, we are, uh, I, I have been, I've seen firsthand the uh, effort done at the, at the border from the um, US personnel to evacuate. Uh, I, I was obviously grateful to to, uh, to the team there. I've seen them. I was standing in the online to get my, you know, paper and my kids paper, uh, you know, my pa our passport uh, stamp for us to get into the ferry. I've seen the staff that have, have not slept uh, the entire night. The situation was was just overwhelming. Despite their hard work, I was unable, despite multiple attempts to get into the ferry to cross the Red Sea to Jeddah, I was able to flee the country only through the um, British troops uh, who were also evacuating people through um, military aircraft to Cyprus. Uh, and that's, I'm just telling you, this is only a small part of the problem on the people, on the, especially affecting the American citizens. I met an, a doctor who was an American citizen who's been in Port Sudan for five days trying to get into the ferry. Wow. So yeah, the situation is pretty desperate. All right, Dr. Hafiz Abdul Hafiz, he is a board member of the Sudanese American Physicians Association. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we are going to, uh, after this next break, we're going to shift gears and speak with Abdullah Hamoud, the Palestinian Muslim American mayor of Dearborn, on some of the policy changes he has initiated during his 15 or so months in office since he was elected mayor of Dearborn. Um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our next guest right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Life for Relief and Development has now been rated as one of the best charities for humanitarian aid. Life's humanitarian projects span the globe, and Life is celebrating its 30th anniversary of providing essential life-saving aid to people and communities in 36 countries, regardless of race, color, religion, or cultural background. 
Where there is life, there is hope. And when disaster occurs here or around the world, including being one of the first responders to the Turkey-Syria earthquake crisis, Life for Relief and Development rushes in to provide food, medical aid, and shelter to those in need. We are looking to help the earthquake victims, and we take 0% overhead on emergency donations. So please help improve these efforts. Learn more about our involvement to help the helpless and bring hope where it's needed most. And make your tax-deductible donation to Life for Relief and Development now at lifeusa.org or call 248-424-7493. That's 248-424-7493. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday, 8 to 5, and Saturday, 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. And welcome back, everybody. My guest today is Dearborn Mayor Abdullah Hamoud. He is the first Arab American and first Muslim mayor of this great city in Michigan, as well as being the second youngest mayor in the city's history. Before being elected mayor in November 2021, Mayor Hamoud served three terms in the Michigan State General Assembly. He was only 26 years old when he ran for the State House and won. Mayor Hamoud, thank you so much again for joining us here at the Arab Radio. No, thank you so much for having me. So how's your first 17 months been as mayor of one of the largest per capita Arab American communities in America? It's It's been uh, quite the experience. You know, Dearborn is also the seventh largest city in the state of Michigan, um, and the fastest growing. So um, it's been remarkable. It has its ups and downs, uh, a little more noticeable when you go out and about. Um, a lot more people talking about their property taxes. Uh, but all in all, it's been a pretty positive experience. We've been able to accomplish uh, what we set out to accomplish, but there's a whole host of issues that take some time to tackle. And being Arab and Muslim, um, you know, have has that posed any challenges for you? You know, Dearborn's obviously a multi-ethnic community, and so I wouldn't say that being Arab or Muslim is now easier because the mayor is, you know, Dearborn's always been that welcoming place. There's certainly challenges that arise um, of being Arab and Muslim, and oftentimes what happens is people might think you're pushing for one subsect of the community more than the other um, uh, you know, w without validation or justification, just because of, you know, the, of perception. And so, um, you know, I think what I try to do is make sure that I have a very diverse administration that looks like the community that we're serving and that the agenda that we're rolling out impacts all the residents in all four corners of our city. That that's really what we're, we're trying to do. You're no different than Irish mayors, Italian mayors, African-American mayors, Hispanic mayors as that level brought down or do you see the same level? I, I think in the immediate post 9-11 era, which I grew up in, you obviously saw that bigotry at an all time high. I would tell you within the city of Dearborn, you know, we really don't see much of that within our city's boundaries. Um, certainly there's still elements where it does happen. 
and oftentimes maybe not just towards the Arab American and Muslim community, but to other minority communities as well, which we try to address and tackle collectively. Dearborn is the first city um, to designate the Eid an actual holiday with paid time off for employees. I don't think that's ever been done in any other city, has it? And, and why is it important? We, we found out that was a first when we did it. Um, you know, when we were negotiating with our union sisters and brothers in the collective uh, bargaining agreements, we offered Eid al-Fitr, the Eid after Ramadan, as well as Eid al-Adha, the Eid that commemorates the returning of the pilgrimage or the conclusion of the pilgrimage, um, both as paid holidays. I think it's important because when you have a diverse workforce, you want to ensure that you're addressing the needs of this diverse workforce. You know, the, the city has always given Easter, Christmas Eve, Christmas, other holidays that are entrenched in other faith traditions um, every single year. And so now that you have a growing Muslim workforce, uh, many of the majority of the residents who happen to come to our city hall are gonna be coming that day because they're busy doing the eight functions. We thought it wise to offer those two days and um, then the news broke that we were the first to do it. And uh, that, that really wasn't the intention. Uh, I remember entering that table uh, with the unions and I was just like, I'm not coming in on it. Do you want to come in on it? Uh, and the collective answer was, yeah, many of our union members are also not coming in um, because it, it's a it's 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 a relative it's a faith holiday for for a big chunk of our city. So it's just a matter of actually having somebody in position to bring it up because I think people understand it, right? Uh, they're a absolutely. That's literally all it took was just recognizing the diverse workforce that we had and the growing concentration of Muslim Americans within the city administration, but also within the city itself. Last week, I interviewed uh, the Syrian Muslim American mayor of Prospect Park in New Jersey, mm -hmm. uh, Muhammad Khairullah. He talked about how he was uh, invited and then denied access to the White House Eid celebration. Um, have you ever had, have you had issues like that? To be welcomed and unwelcomed at the entrance at the door, you know, from a cultural perspective, it's like the most disrespectful thing. Um, and so uh, I don't, I'm not familiar with the, the merits as to why or the rationale. I just read the headlines like everyone else. Were you invited to the Eid, uh, the White House Eid? Yeah, I was and invited, um, but unfortunately my schedule did not permit me to go. Any uh, big legislation or other policy changes that uh, you're advocating for locally or nationally to help Dearborn in the country, is there anything that you feel is really important that people need to understand better? Um, or that may be, you know, much tougher than you thought to argue. Um, you know, what are those top big issues that you have on your plate? Well, one of the big things is obviously as it pertains to flooding, Dearborn was devastated by floods in 21. So we're really working with the state to advocate for large sums of money to be allocated to address a flood mitigation. And so we're working, we have a federal grant that we're working on finalizing to apply some of those dollars, but really need you know, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar problem for communities across Southeast Michigan. That's one. Secondly, we just recently announced a $30 million investment in our parks and green spaces. What we learned from COVID was that this, these were some of the few places that people could go. And if you talk about the mental health crisis that we have to tackle as America, you know, Dearborn is no different. And having good quality green spaces that are accessible by the general public is extremely important. So we're investing in those spaces um, to hopefully improve what we offer as city assets um, to our residents. Is there a big uh, immigrant and uh, asylum or refugee issue in Dearborn? 
not issue. I mean, we have proliferated as a community because of the immigration, the refugees that have settled here or resettled here in the city of Dearborn. Um, obviously, with the Afghani refugees that have come in, they've been stationed at the border between Dearborn and Detroit. But what we found was many of the Afghani refugees would love to be permanently resettled in the city of Dearborn because of our welcoming nature and the fact that we were once home to the Italian immigrants, the Polish immigrants, the Lebanese, Yemeni, Iraqi, now Afghani. And so we're really um, just known in that respect. And if you look at our small businesses that are proliferating, it's largely immigrant-owned businesses that are proliferating. And so it's only added to the vibrancy of the city of Dearborn. And so we welcome it. You've only been in 17 months, so I'm not going to ask you if you're going to run for Congress, the Senate, yeah, or no. president. No, I'm here in the mayor's office. And, uh, you know, uh, honestly, you know, we're really just trying to move the needle on our public health efforts. You know, we, we have a public health department that we launched, um, seeding it with the resources. We're conducting the first ever community health needs assessment. Uh, within the city of Dearborn, to try to understand the unique challenges that our residents face to help hopefully drive our decision making. You know, I like to make, uh, I like to have data drive decision making. And so we need to collect the data first. And so that will be kicking off later this year. And um, hopefully as we progress throughout our first term, so do the answers to many of the problems that Dearborn residents face. It sounds like Dearborn is just a uneventful, not you know, when we read the news, it's always controversy. I don't yeah. see or hear controversy. I see good things happening there. Um, it seems that you've been embraced by the voters and all the people. There don't seem to be these protests. I kind of compare your election as mayor to John F. Kennedy, who was Catholic, being president of the United States. There was this big uh, brouhaha about him being Catholic. And when he got in, it wasn't an issue. Um, is that a similarity that now it's like we're beyond that? Like yeah. an Arab or a Muslim is not that uh, dramatic anymore. Let's just move ahead. I think, um, you know, once you achieve that milestone, it kind of, okay, great. You know, let's just keep moving on, you know, because we never ran to be the first. We ran to be the best. I wouldn't compare myself to JFK. Um, but what I would say is I think there's this understanding, at least in the city of Dearborn and many pockets across the country, that uh, what matters is not the direction that an individual prays. What matters is the direction in which that individual leads. And hopefully that's what leads to stronger growing communities. Um, and so it hasn't been an issue. Um, it's been welcomed and embraced, but we always have to keep our ear to the ground. The important part of government is making sure that you build pathways of trust with your residents, because that trust is what allows you to maneuver, to, to advance, to, to advocate for. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. My guest, uh, Mayor Abdullah Hamoud, it's always a pleasure to have you. The mayor of Dearborn, um, just to see you in office, uh, I'm sure every Arab that is listening to this, and even non-Arab, it says something great about our country, that your ethnicity and your religion no longer matters. You're going to be judged on your performance as a mayor, and uh, it's just nice to see that and hear that. And somebody as young as you are, we're really, we expect big things. So don't rule out running for president, okay? <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate the kind words. And uh, I think uh, I like to stick where home is. And the heart right now is in the city of Dearborn. And that was uh, our uh, guest, uh, Dearborn Mayor Abdullah Hamoud. I know he's very popular out there in Dearborn. We're so happy but uh, that was the second time I was able to interview him. It's just so nice to talk to him, always positive, always moving forward. 
um, playing down, you know, some of the challenges that we have to deal with all the time, like racism. Um, he's kind of brought that level down through good leadership and treating everybody fairly. Um, I just want to uh, thank everybody for joining us here at uh, the Ray Hanania radio show. Remember, you can uh, uh, go and listen to our podcast. We just started our season three episode, uh, season three. Uh, our first episode was last week. And uh, we had some great guests, uh, uh, Mayor Khairula of Prospect Park in New Jersey, who was invited to the White House. And when he got there, uh, he was told he couldn't go because of the Secret Service, claiming that he was on a restricted list. Um, and uh, this episode, uh, uh, season three, episode two, I'm really uh, happy we were able to connect with some of the people who escaped the violence in Sudan um, uh, our NGO guest, uh, we called her Francis. That obviously isn't really her name, um, but the, she does so much work there. There's so many Americans, uh, Arab and non-Arab, um, who go there to help, uh, not just the people in Sudan, but in all these other countries. Um, so I want to thank her for joining us and sharing her experience. It's kind of harrowing, you know, she's safe now, so it sounds good. But you got to remember at the time, there's shooting all around you. There's bombs all around you. You have no idea what could happen. Um, and it has to be very frightening. But one of the nice things she spoke about was how uh, generous and kind the Arab and Muslim people are um, that she ran into as they were fleeing the violence in neighboring cities. They welcomed her. They gave her shelter and her the people around her. Um, and also her, she would not leave um, some of the Sudanese people that were helping her. She wouldn't leave them behind, even though it was a UN policy to only uh, help the non-Sudanese to leave the country. So that was a little, uh, you know, uh, it's very impressive to have her. So we want to thank her. And of course, Dr. Hafiz Abdul Hafiz with the Sudanese American Physician Association, um, he and uh, Sepa uh, go to uh, Sudan uh, to help the people there. They open hospitals. They provide medical care. They provide, uh, you know, uh, they do surgeries uh, uh, like uh, Dr. Uh, Hafiz, who is a, uh, a cancer pediatric and cancer surgeon. Um, they put their life at risk. And he talked about Dr. Bushra, who was killed there. Uh, one of the volunteers helping the people he was killed during the conflict that began April 15th in Sudan. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening again and, or watching. If you're watching us on our Facebook stream, remember, we're here every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern time in Detroit and Washington, D.C. And uh, you could watch us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arab News. We're brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network. Uh, and we're sponsored by Arab News, the leading English language newspaper in the Middle East. I'm very proud to be writing for them uh, op-ed columns and doing many interviews. Um, this year, we are focusing on the Ray Hanania show on the Arab American community and their experiences. So I want to hear from you. You email me at ray.hanania at arabnews.com with any ideas or guest topics that you want on. I'm Ray Hanania. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We will speak to you next week. All right. On May 17th, Wednesday. Have a great week, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. 
and we'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.